Hi, everybody. I'm Saran Yadbarak, and this is a special bonus episode of Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. This podcast went a lot of places in season two. We explored programming languages, data overload, security crises, the advent of serverless. I mean, we even went to Mars. But after closing out season two, there was still one more place we wanted to go. We wanted to go inside the minds of the advocates and thought leaders who help shape all the work that developers do. Sometimes they're called developer advocates, or they're in developer relations, or they're developer evangelists. Whatever their exact titles, from the developer's perspective, they seem to do a lot of the same things. You've seen them give keynotes at conferences. You've heard them getting interviewed on podcasts like this one. You've probably read their blog posts. But who are they? And what exactly are they using their voices to get done? To ring in 2019, we've pulled together a roundtable of amazing people for you. While their titles are all different, their purpose is the same. They're here to help developers and make sure their needs and voices are heard. These folks are classic command line heroes. From the Bay Area, Sandra Persing is a Mozilla global strategist and creator of the DevRel Summit. Hi, Saran. Hello. And also in San Francisco, we have Ricky Robinette. He's the director of the Developer Network over at Twilio. What's up? (laughs) Joining me from just outside of Phoenix is Robin Bergeron, a community architect at Red Hat. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing great. Excellent. So there are a lot of titles floating around. There's developer advocate, developer evangelist, developer relations. And with all these new things, basic definitions are super important. So I think a good place to start is just to define what these things are and specifically what you all do in this space. So can you tell me your job title and what that title actually means? Ricky, let's start with you. Sounds good. My title is the director of the developer network. What I have the privilege of doing is serving a team of uh, developer relations uh, professionals. We have an evangelism team, we have a education team, and we have a community team. So uh, it's definitely uh, a mishmash of all the, the different titles you hear. We kind of collect them on the team. Awesome. And Sandra, what about you? I am at Mozilla as the global strategist for events and sponsorship. And um, I work with our developer outreach team in the emerging tech group at Mozilla. And I usually explain my day-to-day activities as a lot of research and communications and explorations that really leads to evaluating and deciding, you know, how we should all invest our resources, our time, money, swag, speakers, etc., in order to give back to the developer community, but also to receive feedback from the developer community. So both the evangelism side and the advocate side. Awesome. And Robin, you're up next. Hi. Well, so um, my official title is community architect. Um, I get a lot of questions about this title. I've gone by community manager. I've gone by developer advocate. I've even gone by operations advocate uh, at one job in the past. But um, I like to think of what I do as you know, when you're a community manager, like the idea that you're really managing all these people who are contributing out of the goodness of their heart is sort of a silly notion. So um, Mm. I like to think of what I do as building frameworks in which people can actually successfully participate and make sure that roadblocks aren't in their way and that they can get done all the things that they want to get done. 
And Ricky, since you are essentially the director of the entire network, you're not just in advocacy or evangelism or community, it kind of feels like you're running the whole show. How do you understand this idea of being an advocate, either for developers or advocating to developers? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Phil Nash, who's one of the evangelists on our team, had had a great framing for this that I'm going to steal, which is we have a lot of different ways of describing what we do, but ultimately a lot of them just mean help. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. We help developers. And so, you know, sometimes that help looks like answering a question on Stack Overflow. Sometimes it looks like building a new tool. Sometimes it looks like organizing an event. Uh, and then sometimes it looks like initiating a product change uh, internally. So uh, I I think that's the best framing I've heard is uh, really our responsibility is to help. Mm, Absolutely. And Sandra, what I'm so interested in about your position is that you're not just a strategist, you're a global strategist. And you're all over the world trying to bring developers together and help them as part of your job at Mozilla. When we think about advocacy on a global scale, what does that look like? Does it mean something different across different countries, continents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We know we just wrapped our third annual DevRel Summit this year in Singapore. And the past two years, um, we hosted the event in Seattle. And getting out to Singapore, we saw a different perspective. When we get outside of the Bay Area, it's It can be something as basic as, you know, how do we make sure everything just works offline Mm. because connectivity is such an issue? Or something like, how do we just make sure a developer who's working in Indonesia feels just connected to a developer community, um, whether that's online or on-site through meetups? Um, And and always going back to recognizing that some of our, quote-unquote, basic things, some of our easy things, like creating a simple meetup in the Bay Area, which is so a dime a dozen, right? You throw mm-hmm. a rock and there's a meetup everywhere, mm-hmm. um, is still something really special and something that a developer in, uh, let's say, Vietnam still sees to be incredibly important and valuable in enriching their developer community life. And one thing I'm noticing is that everyone has mentioned community in some way. And I run a community myself. I do Code Newbie. And I regularly get recruited by companies to be in an evangelist or a community manager for their company. And one thing that I've always been a little worried about, maybe a little squeamish about, is thinking, okay, I've spent the last three, four years taking care of this community with no strings attached on my terms. I'm doing what I think is best. But if I work for a company, then will I have to sacrifice that? Am I going to be in a position where I have to put the company before the needs of the community? And how do I balance that relationship? So I'm wondering, Robin, maybe we could start with you as a community architect. How do you, how do you separate that? How do you maintain that church and state relationship, so to speak? Well, it's certainly an interesting balance. I mean, one of my former jobs was actually being the uh, Fedora project leader. Um, And, you know, Fedora is the upstream for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Mm -hmm. You know, part of your role there is really to be sort of the the balancing act, right? The uh, pass-through between, you know, are people happy in the community? Is company happy with what the community is doing? And making sure that, you know, basically everybody's one big happy family. And, you know, I think when you're doing your job best in that position, um, yeah, you're pretty much bound to probably anger someone mm-hmm. um, at the, you know, at, at the corporate headquarters once in a while. Um, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding at the end of the day, right? Like, I 
people ask me all the time, like, how do you balance, you know, what's going on with Ansible and Red Hat? And, mm-hmm. you know, like when Ansible got bought by Red Hat, like, oh, my God, is Red Hat going to, you know, take it over and, you know, do something terrible to it and, like, get rid of, you know, Ubuntu support? And it was like, that would be defeating the whole purpose of having this entire project. Like, mm-hmm. we haven't gotten to 4,000 contributors by being terrible. Making sure that your management trusts in you and that you have clear communication with folks all the time about, you know, what's actually going on and that there aren't surprises, you know, on either side of the aisle is is part of what makes the difference between, you know, success and maybe not always success, but, you know, certainly people being surprised. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Ricky, what about you? How do you think about church and state in that relationship when you're doing so many different things? I think you you have to believe uh, in the in the company and the technology. You have to believe that what you are bringing to developers is going to have an impact uh, on their lives and their careers and their companies. And then on the flip side, you have to have executives who believe in this approach to your work. Uh, so we're we're very lucky that you know our CEO is a developer and in in many ways was the driving force behind the way that we approach our developer community. Our evangelists have a mission to inspire and equip developers. And so there are times when we say, is this is this going to inspire and equip them? Because if it's not, we shouldn't really be doing it because it's something that's outside of our purview. Mm-hmm. Sandra, I feel like you're a little bit at an advantage because Mozilla is a nonprofit, <laughs> right? So I feel like maybe I was going to say, yeah, tell me about that. The history of Mozilla is that we're a rebellious company. Mm-hmm. We've always re- rebelled against the the corporate man, right? Uh, the whole history of coming out of Netscape and mm-hmm. with our one of our founders, Mitchell Baker, um, and making sure that. Uh, the web is and the internet is an open and free resource for all. I mean, we still, every one of us, every Mazillion believes this mantra and we hold it to it, you know, dear to our hearts. So it, it's absolutely an amazing, um, you know, company that has embraced the community side 100%. Absolutely. So, Ricky, I vividly remember the red like sports jacket, and I remember seeing you personally on stage doing these awesome demos. And it feels like that whole approach to connecting with developers and helping developers was very new. Where did that idea even come from at Twilio? Well, that's that's very kind of you to to say. Uh, we we do really believe we stand on the shoulders of giants here. You think of Guy Kawasaki with Apple, of people doing this style of uh, marketing way before us. I think that uh, we we got to be fortunate enough to be at the right time to to take this to developers. And there's just so many people who came in with this idea of of uh, how we can do this and how to to keep leveling up uh, how we approached it. I don't actually know who who invented the red track jacket though, so now I need to to go find the find history that of where that started. That's a great jacket. Yeah, I know that's like a, that's uh, that's my mission for this afternoon now. And I'm wondering how has that idea of evangelism and advocacy how has that changed over time at Twilio? Given the fact that you know at one point you were a a small little startup or a little rebellious startup, and then now you're kind of a, a big company. Uh, how has the shape of vandalism changed as the company itself has changed? Yeah. When I started here, I, I feel like I could have spent 365 days a year at hackathons. And in New York, every weekend, you had to pick from five or six hackathons. So, so much of 
what we did with evangelism was you know the hackathon scene and now that's not the same scene and so uh really the the biggest changes have been driven outside the company rather than inside so i talk about evangelist inspiring and, and equipping and so uh, the nice thing is that hasn't changed in all the years. So uh, the ways that they inspire and equip keep going differently, uh, but uh, the mission itself mm-hmm. doesn't change. And Robin, with the rise of DevOps and DevSecOps, what does advocacy look like for for you and for being that community architect? Is there going to be a ops advocate? Um, well, actually, that was, I mean, my first job after... Um, dropping out of school. Don't recommend it, kids. Don't do that at home. <laughs> Stay in school. Uh, listening, look at, looking at you, daughter. Uh, <laughs> my first job was actually as a sysadmin at, at Motorola for a number of years. And when I moved on from being in charge of Fedora, uh, I worked at Elasticsearch for a while and, you know, had this title of developer advocate and was like, yeah, so I hacked my way through several semesters of C in college. Um, but, you know, my heart was always in operations. I started feeling like, am I really a developer advocate? I feel like I'm just advocating to ops folks mostly. And I just started calling myself an operations advocate, which nobody blinked an eye at. They, everyone said, well, that's a really cool title. And I'm like, you know, I'm just advocating in general, mostly, you know, to the inside of my company uh, about what everybody, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. everybody else is doing. So, Sandra, we talked about how advocacy and evangelism looks different in different parts of the world. But I'm wondering, over the years, as we become increasingly more global and more connected, has the larger picture, the larger shape of evangelism shifted over time for you? You know, what is developer relations? Are we pitching our product, being more salesy? Um, You know, and I noticed that even large corporations are moving away from that tactic, um, understanding that being authentic, being truly um, mindful of listening and responding to the needs of developers is key above all else, um, not pitching product. I always go back and share with my team at Mozilla that developers are actually one of the smartest and creative customer base that we'll ever work with. Mm -hmm. They can smell that BS from miles away, so we have to be smart about how we are sharing information. Like it has to be a diverse group of talented and intelligent minds all coming together to become creative in our approach of communicating to our developer community. Mm. Oh, I really like that. I like this idea of many different skill sets, I guess, backgrounds need to come together to really serve developers well and to help developers help themselves too. When I think about the rise of developer advocates, to me it feels very connected to the rise of open source. It almost feels like the more open source contributors there were and the bigger deal open source became and the more uh, big companies took it seriously, they almost had to establish better relationships with these open source contributors, these developers. And it feels like those two are really connected to me. So I'm curious about your ideas about that. So Robin, let's let's start with you. Is that true at all? Is that idea of advocacy connected at all to the rise of open source? If you are a company who is uh, selling software that uh, or selling whatever licenses, long-term support, you know, whatever your open source company's business model actually is, um, if you don't have that feedback loop or you're not actually paying attention to what people are saying, 
uh, you're going to wind up delivering a, the proverbial wrong thing mm-hmm. um, and really being able to encompass that, you know, around the world and just day to day in what you do is the difference between success and I guess, making the wrong thing, which nobody wants to spend time doing. Mm -hmm. That's a bad idea. Yeah, that's generally a bad idea. (laughs) Cool. So I want to know from each of you what you all have been focusing on, really thinking about. So Ricky, let's start with you. What kind of improvements do you try to bring about in the developer culture in your role at Twilio? If I were to say the phrase I've heard the most when I talk to developers, it's I'm not a developer, but, mm. uh, and, and that's probably like one of the, the biggest things that's always on my mind is broadening the definition of developer. Uh, imposter syndrome for so many of us is, is a very real thing. It's just amazing how even some of the best developers, you know, are, are struggling with it. Uh, and for me, that's one of the, the biggest things, uh, we can all do in our culture is give people permission to say, you know what? I am a developer. Uh, mm-hmm. I am solving problems with code. Uh, and so one of my favorite stories is we have a member of our community uh, named Doug McKenzie that's a magician. And he taught himself PHP so he could use tech in his magic tricks. Oh, uh, neat. Doug is so cool because he, he was super humble about like, oh, I'm not a developer. And suddenly you see like he, he's writing more complicated code than than many people have ever seen to do mm-hmm. things that blow minds. And so uh, I just feel like there's so many Doug McKenzie's in the world who mm-hmm. uh, are doing great things with code and we have the opportunity to give them permission to be part of the community and to have an identity in that work. I love that story because it reminds me of someone I interviewed for the Konami podcast, actually, and she was a writer and she had a bunch of assignments where she had to learn Git in order to write about Git. And she'd written so many of these articles and it grew to be on other coding topics. And eventually, you know, a couple of years had passed and she'd essentially become a developer and didn't know it. And by the time I interviewed her and I said, hey, do you know that you're a developer? She's like, no, I'm a writer. And I said, you can be both. <laughs> you know? They're not mutually exclusive. But yeah, that that shift in perspective of saying, hey, I'm actually coding and creating, therefore I can now call myself a coder, is uh, it's tough for people. It takes a while to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Robin, for you, what's been the most positive change that you've managed to push forward in recent years? Just making sure that as as we grow, that we're not losing track of the big picture, that, you know, our our main goals around, you know, keeping it simple for people to use, simple for people to contribute to, uh, you know, simple to actually, you know, get stuff done with in your life, making sure we're not, you know, losing track of that or getting more engineering help to just work on some of the structure of the actual project and make sure that we're doing a good job of keeping all that stuff in order was I don't know. I thought that was important. I don't know mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm going to win a Nobel Peace Prize for that. But um, I know it's it's something that mattered a lot to lots of the contributors. <laughs> that works for me. Sandra, what about you? What's been the most positive change that you've managed to push forward in recent years as a global strategist? Two things that really stand out from my mind is um, expanding this definition, the persona of developer has been something that's been very important. We'd, we'd love to grow our community, right? So why why restrict the definition and the description of a developer? 
when we did a panel at Sundance with some famous names like Reggie Watts and Chris Milk, um, we we gave an opportunity for filmmakers, producers, decision makers to say, oh, we can do that too. We don't have to be bound by restrictions of what can we do as creative filmmakers. Mm -hmm. We can adopt technology and we too can become developers. And, and that was very refreshing to see. Another moment that we had at Mozilla was um, bringing an artist, Ian Brill, a light artist in Chicago, to work with us on a project that we label Arch. And we brought this huge plastic light, LED light, with seven Raspberry Pis being programmed structure to two significant JavaScript developer events this year. Um, and in order to invite more programmers, whether they call themselves developers or not, to try out two languages that Mozilla was advocating this year pretty strongly, WebAssembly um, and Rust. So we created two simple um, templates to say, try it out. But it's not programming that we wanted to push towards. It's not coding. It was, yes, there's some lines of code. It's language. But what you want to do is create a few lines that now can translate into art. Um, and that brought so many new people into our fold, literally brought them to our table. Mm -hmm. And then they would write their lines of code, go and walk over under the arch to see their light expressions now being looped into structure. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. Wow, that sounds beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So I'm wondering, when we talk about advocating for developers, and we talked a ton about community and this idea of, at the end of the day, whatever our job titles are, we're really just trying to help people. What do developers need help with? Ricky, let's start with you. What What do developers say that they need from you? Wow. Yeah, What? that, that is a good question. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that uh, one of the things we found is that uh, they're like, Technology is changing so quickly, and a lot of what we get asked about is just where do I start? Mm. What what do I do first? How do how do I know I'm on the right path? For us, that's probably one of the the areas we have been investing the most is uh, we we call it like helping people discover their power to change the world with code. Mm. Oh, that's uh, beautiful, and I approve. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, that's exciting. Uh, so we, we built a tool called Twilio Quest to help people discover that power, uh, to, to help them know where to get started. Uh, but, but I just sense, you know, there's been this theme of people finding their identity or are getting permission to have that identity. And for every person that's writing code already or solving problems with code or software, there's so many more who want to, mm. uh, and just don't know where to start yet. Uh, so that's that's a thing that's on our mind a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Robin, for you at Red Hat, what are Red Hat developers looking for? Um, a lot of times, it's people who come to you and you know they've got some roadblock in their way. Whether it's you know somehow my PR fell through the you know robot cracks. Um, but a lot of times it's also people who are like, hey, I had this cool idea. Maybe it doesn't quite fit in here, but I thought maybe it might improve you know how the community is running or might be a good you know companion tool to other stuff that we're working on. What do I do? And it's like, well, you know, how can I help you get started? Like mm. you know. Uh, what can I do? Like, do you just need someone to say yes? Because I am here to say yes all day long to basically mm -hmm. anything. And just let people know that, yes, yeah, of course you have permission to do that. So that's, you know, I think 
the best thing that you can do, at least in my position, is mm. make sure people don't have things in their way or, you know, if the one thing that's in their way is waiting for someone to just say yes, keep reiterating all the time that you don't need permission. But if someone needs it, then by God, give it to them. Mm-hmm. So the last question, we're gonna, we need to wrap things up. So I'm going to ask you each something. What is the single most important thing that you're going to be advocating for in 2019? If you had a magic wand, what's the next big thing you'd want to change? Sandra, let's start with you. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the biggest challenges and yet the most exciting projects that we're going to be working on for 2019 is to truly deliver on our promise of, you know, the web being one of the greatest, biggest, most accessible platform. Um, we always tell developers it's it's where you should build and deploy everywhere. Um, but knowing that the web itself is incredibly complex and that we have multiple browser vendors out there, sometimes that's not a true statement. And it's been a perennial uh, challenge for us, uh, especially at Mozilla, where we want to keep the web open and free and accessible for all. We want to we want to continue to make sure that we are fulfilling that promise to our developers mm. that the web is indeed open, accessible, and available to all. Oh, love that, Ricky. What about you? Just making sure we're serving developers where they gather online and offline throughout the entire world. Uh, it can be super easy to get focused on what you see and forget that there's developers everywhere, even when you don't see them. Uh, so uh, I would wave my magic wand mm-hmm. and uh, just be more places all over the world uh, finding out how we can help developers there. Mm-hmm. I just want to say I love Jared's talk about dark matter developers. It was incredible. <laughs> oh, it's like uh, such an a, a amazing concept when you hear it for the first time. It's like, wow, that really is a thing. Oh, tell us about that. What's a dark matter developer? Um, essentially, there are developers out there. There, there are those who do not show up to your meetups, who do not, um, you know, uh, participate in GitHub online communities, do not contribute to Stack Overflow. Um, those are the developers who are still actively working and contributing, but we do not know. We, you know, we know that they're there, mm-hmm. but we cannot see them. We cannot identify them. And those are actually a, a very important segment of the developer community that we tend to ignore, and we cannot. Um, it will be to our detriment, working in developer relations, to ignore the, the community that does not speak up. Um, and we need to be more proactive in searching those dark matter developers out in our universe. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, and Jared actually works at Twilio, right? Yes. Yes, he runs the APAC um, DevRel. One of my uh, former Red Hat colleagues who's now at a company called Tidelift, uh, Chris Grams, actually used to have a blog that was titled Dark Matter Matters because it's sort of the, Mm -hmm. you know, the the things you don't see still actually matter. Mm -hmm. So. Mm Absolutely. And Robin, what about you? What would you do with your magic wand? Oh, with my magic wand, so many things. But I guess uh, pursuant to this conversation, um, getting better at managing our dependencies upon each other and, and maybe not surprising each other, especially when so many of us work in, you know, OpenStack and OPNFV and, and Ansible and all these things that, you know, build on top of each other, um, just making sure that the relationships between our projects is more obvious than things can be when you're head down in stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a thing I'm really looking forward to over the coming year because we're getting traction and mm-hmm. stuff. It's very exciting right now. Oh, traction is always just so good. It's so exciting. 
Well, I want to thank all of you so, so much for joining us today and sharing your minds and your thoughts and your stories. Thank you all so much. You want to say goodbye? Bye, y'all. Thank you so much, Saran. It's been a pleasure being on this panel. (laughs) Yes, thanks. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Today's roundtable included Robin Bergeron, community architect at Red Hat, Sandra Persing, global strategist at Mozilla, and Ricky Robinette, director of the developer network at Twilio. I consider myself hugely lucky to have platforms where I get to share my vision for what our community could become, whether here on this podcast or elsewhere. But I want to point out, you do not have to have your own podcast to be an advocate. Being an advocate simply means you keep your eyes open and you speak up on behalf of others. It really can be everybody's job. So I'm hoping Robin, Sandra, and Ricky give you a little inspiration to advocate for what matters to you. Meanwhile, Season 3 of Command Line Heroes is already in the works. You can be one of the first to learn about new episodes when they drop this spring. If you haven't already, subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's one click, and it's 100% free. I'm Saranyat Barak. Thank you so much for listening. And until season three, keep on coding. Hi, I'm Mike Ferris, Chief Strategy Officer. I've been a Red Hatter for about 25 years. And before your episode starts, I want to talk a bit about AI. The hot topic right now is foundation models. And those are important, but at Red Hat, we see them as just a piece of the larger AI infrastructure. And here's what I mean by that. Enterprises are built of hundreds or even thousands of applications. It's not hard to imagine a future in which those applications are being served by hundreds or thousands of models. Without a common platform for your data scientists and developers, without a way to simplify some really complex workflows as you train, tune, serve, and monitor models, it can get overwhelming pretty quickly. And that's why we've built Red Hat OpenShift AI, a platform where everyone is working together on the same page to build and deploy AI models and applications with transparency and control. Find out how at redhat.com.